Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Watergate and what came after. Watergate and what came after. This is kind of the uh, the second parter of the Nixon uh, duology, I suppose you would call it, the, the Nixon two-parter. Um, when we last, with our last lecture, we kind of ended with Nixon talking about his foreign policy successes. Um, kind of leading into 1972, Nixon is looking pretty triumphant. Nixon's looking pretty strong. But what ends up happening is, uh, well, it kind of ruins Nixon and kind of ruins the Republican Party for a while. So anyway, let's just go get started. Go over one slide to the election of 1972. So Nixon comes into 1972 looking pretty strong. As I mentioned last class, he had a pretty decent amount of foreign policy success. Going to China, going to Russia, the SALT treaties, uh, theoretically ending the war in Vietnam, which we, which we said was kind of problematic. And the country's doing okay domestically. The country's doing okay domestically. Uh, the economy's doing okay. You know, it's not, you know, we'll talk about that more later. But also, the Democrats are looking very inept. Uh, the Democrats are looking very inept. The Democratic nominee is one George McGovern. Uh, George McGovern is a far-left liberal who's even alienating parts of his own party. Um, remember in 1968, the Democrats choose uh, Hubert Humphrey, who is viewed as a more centrist candidate, alienating the far-left wing of the party. They, they, tend, they want to overcorrect in 72, go for somebody who's very liberal, in fact, most other um, mainline Democrats don't like him very much. For instance, a Democratic senator off the record uh, once said that um, you know, when voters find out that McGovern is for abortion, amnesty, and marijuana, they would abandon him. This quote gets later uh, changed to be abortion, amnesty, and acid. This idea that you know McGovern is for abortion, he's for amnesty of the Vietnam uh, draft dodgers, and acid, LSD, drug use. They would abandon him. The guy who says this is a man by the name of Thomas Eagleton. Uh, you might want to know the name because he's about to become uh, important later. McGovern is also very anti-war. He's very anti-war, which is not unusual in the far left of the Democratic Party. But uh, some even question, does he even believe we should have a military at all? Some people question, should we have a military at all? If you go over one side, you'll see McGovern on the campaign trail. Others say, maybe is he just a hippie? You know, who is this McGovern guy? Um, he seems to be anti-military to the point of perhaps we should get rid of the military. Is he some sort of damn dirty hippie? We don't know. Uh, the real challenge for the Democrats actually is from George Wallace. Uh, George Wallace is running once again. He's running as a Democrat. This time around, he's gaining more momentum in the North. He's actually getting more momentum in the North, uh, doing more... You know, speeches at Madison Square Garden, uh, really spreading out quite a bit, trying to do his more populist message about law and order, that sort of thing. Uh, however, if you go over one slide, you'll see what happens to Wallace. Basically, he is shot. Uh, he is shot. Basically, Wallace is shot. Somebody's trying to kill him. Uh, he is paralyzed. He's paralyzed and pretty much ends his run. Uh, George Wallace pretty much becomes a non-factor for the next 20 years or so. He dies in 92, I believe. Uh, near the end of his life, uh, um, not McGovern, Wallace, George Wallace says, you know, I'm going to repent of all the horrible things I've done. He becomes a quote-unquote born-again Christian, uh, saying that I, you know, repent for my horrible racist ways and I'll do anything I can to help out black people. Maybe it's for being shot, but pretty much this is the end of George Wallace. And it's interesting because, you know, McGovern gets the uh, the nomination, and the guy he chooses for his vice president is Eagleton. Uh, Eagleton being the guy who once said, you know, once voters find out that McGovern is for amnesty, sorry, abortion, amnesty, and acid, uh, voters are going to run away from him. Ironic, because now he is uh, McGovern's running mate. He is a running, uh, he is McGovern's running mate. Uh, theoretically, you know, McGovern is seen as a bit more left-wing. Eagleton is viewed as a more centrist candidate, uh, centrist individual. Maybe he could bring some balance to the ticket. Now, during the run-up to the presidency, uh, during the run-up to the election, a bit of a scandal comes out about Eagleton. A bit of a scandal comes out about Eagleton. Uh, basically, it comes out that Eagleton had suffered through depression. Uh, Eagleton had suffered through depression. That in of itself is, you know, not too controversial. Um, it shouldn't be. Nothing wrong with having depression. Uh, however, in this time period, there are, there's definitely a stigma attached to depression. And also, there's not a lot of great treatments out there. Uh, they don't have the... Uh, they don't have the 
you know, medicines that we have now. Um, some of the treatment is a bit more draconian. So, for instance, Eagleton was getting shock therapy. Eagleton was getting shock therapy for his depression, which is uh, that's a that's 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 heavy stuff, shall we say? And likewise, privately, Eagleton's doctors, his shrink, pretty much said, "Hey, if Eagleton um, ever becomes president, his depression might put the country in danger." They're like, you know, Eagleton, he really suffers through depression, and if you know, if if he's president and he might have to be, you know, make some big time decisions about warfare or dropping a bomb or something, this may not be for the best. Now, this is at first is all internal. This is at first all internal. However, as it starts leaking to the press, um, it starts to make McGovern look even weaker. There's, you know, should Eagleton even be uh, in politics? Uh, McGovern claims he still supports Eagleton. He's like, no, no, Eagleton's my guy. I support him. But a couple of days later, he drops Eagleton. Pretty much as, as soon as the story uh, you know, leaks, he drops Eagleton and starts looking for another candidate. Now, a candidate that uh, McGovern desperately wants, he really wants Ted Kennedy. Uh, Ted Kennedy, the youngest of the Kennedy brothers. Uh, Ted Kennedy, Edward Kennedy. He was one of four brothers. By this time, his three older brothers are dead. Um, Joseph Kennedy uh, Jr. died during the war. Uh, John Kennedy died because of, you know, Dallas, the assassination attempt. And Robert Kennedy dies of assassination in California. And and Ted Kennedy, he's a senator for Massachusetts. Uh, He definitely has a high profile. McGovern thinks, if I have a chance of maybe winning the White House, if Democrats have a chance, we can, like, lean upon this Kennedy legacy. Kennedy refuses, though. Uh, Kennedy refuses, probably because of what happened at Chappaquiddick. Um, This is an older scandal where basically Ted Kennedy was driving a car that ran off a bridge. Um, He swims out, and then it comes out later that basically there was a naked woman in the car who was not his wife. And he probably turns down the uh, vice president job. In fact, never really seeks higher office because he knows this scandal's in his closet. It would probably destroy him. So he kind of keeps it very quiet. Um, with Ted Kennedy not available, uh, George McGovern picks Sergeant Shriver. Uh, Sergeant Shriver is Kennedy adjacent. He is Kennedy adjacent because he is married to Eunice Kennedy. Uh, Eunice Kennedy is a Kennedy sister. Uh, Sergeant Shriver is a, um, you know, he, he's married to a Kennedy, so he's a Kennedy in law. And so he's picked to be the vice presidential nominee for uh, McGovern. Uh, not a very strong person. Uh, Shriver does things like he starts a Special Olympics, which is cool, but he's not a strong political figure. Uh, the reason you may know Sergeant Shriver is because um, one of his daughters is Maria Shriver, who would later marry Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they have kids, and I think their daughter married Chris Pratt. So, yeah, there, there's that. Uh, to be honest, though, McGovern really doesn't have a chance. I cannot iterate this about the election of 1972, and it, and it really is uh, verified by the actual election. McGovern has no prayer whatsoever. So in spite the turmoil on the Democratic side, Nixon still feels vulnerable. Nixon is self-conscious about his chances. If you go over one more, you'll see uh, basically Nixon's re-election. There's a couple of reasons why Nixon feels so uh, vulnerable. Part of it is a fallout of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, The Pentagon Papers were a series of papers from the Pentagon, that basically detailed the U.S.'s uh, Vietnam war plans. And basically it shows that the government really didn't have that much of a plan going into Vietnam. Uh, makes the U.S. government look very inept. Now, the Pentagon Papers are pretty straightforward that this is under Lyndon Johnson's administration. This is what the government was doing under Lyndon Johnson's administration. Nixon himself was not hurt too personally because of this. But still, it shows that the White House and, and other parts of the government has leakers. It becomes pretty clear that there are people involved in the government who are leaking things to the press, and Nixon does not care for that. Nixon has long time been very distrustful of the, of the press. He claims they have a liberal bias, an anti-Republican bias, claims that they're against him, that sort of thing. So to plug the leaks, I mean, put plug, plug in parentheses or quotation marks, Nixon has a crew that calls themselves the Plumbers. They call themselves the plumbers. Why are they called the plumbers? Because they plug the leaks. They plug the leaks. Uh, probably the most famous of them, if you go over one slide, is G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who, it's weird he has hair in this picture because he's mainly known for being bald. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy is probably the most famous of these of these plumbers. Um, 
you know, most famous are the people that work for Nixon as G. Gordon Liddy, basically doing all sorts of dirty tricks, all sorts of political things, which, uh, you know, may not be the best thing to do, um, may not be kind of skirting the law of legality. Um, Liddy has only recently died. At the time we're recording this, I believe Liddy dies uh, like two, three years ago. He, he, he finally passed away a couple years ago. But uh, basically, the 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 plumbers they are getting involved in the White House, trying to find out who might be leaking to the press, who may not be absolutely loyal to President Nixon. Now, there's another group that comes out of the plumbers for the 1972 election, the Committee to Reelect the President, the CRP, or if you're against them, the CREEP, the Creep, the Creepers. Uh, they are engaging also in dirty tricks, kind of an expansion of the plumbers. Uh, the plumbers are basically to look at the White House. Creep is designed to really get Nixon reelected. And they engage in all sorts of dirty tricks. They use slush funds. Um, probably the most well-known nowadays member of Creep, even though he was barely a member, he was a kid at the time, barely not a teenager, was Roger Stone. Uh, Roger Stone, if you're unfamiliar with him, you haven't been paying too much attention to the news, uh, Roger Stone is a political operative who's been involved in Donald Trump's uh, orbit for quite a while. Uh, Roger Stone was involved with the Creepers. Pretty much he was just out of college, just in college. Um, his big thing is like he would uh, he would send a check, supposedly from like the uh, American Communist Party, to McGovern's uh, re-election campaign. And then whenever they cashed the check, he would, he would get the check back and be like, oh, we're going to leave this to the press. Look at this, you know, the... Uh, the McGovern campaign accepting money from the U.S. Communist Party, even though it was a, it was a total lie, total trap. Uh, they also do things like uh, tap McGovern's phones, and they send IRS audits out of him. And, and the funny thing is, during the campaign, McGovern is campaign complaining that, like, I think my phones are being tapped. Or, you know, um, I think the IRS is unfairly auditing me. And, you know, some people are like, oh, you sound crazy or whatever. But he's actually right. The IRS was doing that stuff. And uh, the Nixon campaign was taking his phones. That, let's put that to the side, though. Uh, the election results themselves, if you see by the map, if you go over one slide, it is a bloodbath. It is an absolute, total bloodbath. Uh, Nixon wins 520 to 17 in the Electoral College. This is a huge victory. Huge victory. Pretty much McGovern only gets Massachusetts and D.C. Massachusetts was viewed as the most democratic, you know, liberal state in the entire country in this time period. Um, it was the popular vote. Nixon gets 60% of the popular vote. I mean, these are both bloodbaths. Um, only surpassed by Reagan in 1984. Uh, I think Reagan gets a slightly better um, electoral college number. But it, it's, it's an absolute, complete bloodbath. And, and it's pretty evident that you know, Nixon is popular, and the country likes him. And it's kind of interesting, because not only two years after this, Nixon's gone, and his name has become like a pariah. Um, what he's done to the country, the, the Republican Party, they, the Republican Party looks dead, and Nixon himself becomes a pariah. And it all has to do with Watergate. Go over one more slide. This is the Watergate Hotel and Office Complex. Uh, this is where the term Watergate and every other political scandal afterwards gets the name Gate. Is from the Watergate. It's a hotel. It's an office complex. It's on a river uh, in D.C. I believe it's on the Potomac River in D.C. It's just a, a new office complex and hotel. And so during the campaign, on the night of June 17th, 1972, uh, the Creepers, the Creepies, you know, uh, Nixon's Committee to Reelect the President, they're trying to engage in their usual dirty tricks, try to figure out stuff. And on that night, a group of five individuals is arrested trying to break into the Watergate. They're trying to break into the Democratic uh, National Convention's headquarters. Basically, the Democrats have their offices in the Watergate, and they're busted trying to break into it. And if you can see one more slide, you'll see the actual burglars. You'll see the actual burglars. And it's kind of interesting because most of the guys who were arrested, they're Cuban nationals. They're Cuban nationals. Some of them were involved in the Bay of Pigs. And they were also carrying a lot of cash. They're carrying a lot of cash and also some recording equipment. And it becomes very quick, clear very quickly that these are not ordinary burglars. 
You know, a regular burglar is not going to carry a bunch of cash with them to a robbery. They're not going to carry a bunch of recording equipment. Generally, when you want to rob somebody, you don't have money, so you don't bring it with you. And you, you try to have as little equipment as possible. You're not bringing bulky items with you. But these individuals were. And it becomes very evident very quickly that something's up, that they're not there to rob this place. They're there to do something to it. They're there to maybe put to bug it, to put some recording equipment in. And they're sent to jail. They're sent to jail. Uh, the judge, you know, does not let them post bail or anything. And uh, the Nixon White House is really trying to distance themselves from it because some of these guys do have connections to the Nixon White House. You know, um, the <laughs> the Cuban nationals, some of them have CIA ties. Uh, James McCord, he, he's known to be like a Nixon dude. And so it's fairly evident something's going on, but they're not talking. They're not talking. And the Nixon White House at first is trying to distance themselves from everything. But as they cover it up, the story grows more legs. Um, it's theoretical. I don't want to say it's possible or likely, but it's theoretical that the Nixon White House could have gotten in front of this. They could have gotten in front of this and been like, oh, yeah, you know, we did it. Oops, we got sorry. Let's get our slap on the wrist or whatever. Um, you'll often hear people say about Watergate, it wasn't the crime, it was the cover-up. And that's definitely what's going on here. It's, it's you know, the, breaking into a political campaign, you know, it, it, I'm not saying it's a non-story. It is a deal, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it, it's embarrassing and it looks bad, but it shouldn't in of itself be enough to, like, ruin a presidency. Still, Nixon is able to win re-election fairly easily. So by the time we get to January 1973, so, you know, right when Nixon's going to be re-inaugurated, uh, the burglars are convicted. The burglars are convicted. Uh, basically, the burglars are, you know, they go to trial. They, they keep mum. Uh, the judge is actually convinced that there's mo more going on. He threatens to sentence them to the maximum time to try to get them to talk. Uh, basically, they stay completely mum. They stay completely mum until finally James McCord, the guy on the left, he starts to talk. He starts to talk, and it all starts to unravel. All of a sudden, he's talking about this whole Nixon thing. He said Nixon put him up to it. He said, uh, you know, Nixon put them up to this. The Nixon's campaign made sure, you know, Nixon wanted to find out what dirt the Democrats had upon him, even though he knew that he was going to win the election, or he was pretty sure they're going to win the election. He didn't want to be surprised. He wanted to find out what did the Democrats have on me. Uh, likewise, once they go to jail, once they go to jail, the Nixon White House, well, the committee to reelect the president, uh, uses campaign funds from Nixon's reelection fund to divert half a million dollars to go to the burglars for their silence. Pretty much each one of these guys was paid about a hundred grand to be quiet. Uh, that also does not look very good. Uh, generally, you do not pay people to be quiet when you have nothing to hide. And so a grand jury is intervened. A, 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 a Jan Vury is not intervened, is, is convinced, basically, the grand jury is like, hey, we think there's some smoke here, there's probably some fire, and the Senate begins to investigate. Uh, the Senate begins to investigate. Uh, Nixon's White House counsel, basically his private lawyer, John Dean, was implicated and fired. Likewise, uh, Nixon's attorney general is resigns under pressure. Basically, Nixon is trying to make this case go away. He's trying to make the in attorney general or his personal lawyer make it go away. Uh, they feel like they can't. And, you know, the scandal, once we get to the summer hearings, I mean, it's going long. Nobody's really talking. It's, it's only during the summer hearings when there's an offhand comment that really makes this thing blow wide open. Basically, an aide mentions, kind of in passing, during his deposition, that Nixon has the White House wired. Uh, Nixon has the Oval Office wired. It's mic'd up. Now, Nixon is not the one who initially put uh, microphones in the White House. That would actually be Lyndon Johnson. Nixon is the one, though, who uses them extensively, particularly in the White and the Oval Office. Uh, basically, Nixon is recording everything that goes on the Oval Office, um, particularly when he's not there, particularly when he's not there. Now, Nixon would say, no, 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 this is for my memoirs. This is this is private stuff for my memoirs. So later on, whenever I want to write about, you know, what it's like to be president, I could I could, you know, listen to the listen to the tapes and find out what was going on. Um, probably more than likely, he was trying to figure out what people were saying behind his back. Nixon was deeply paranoid. Nixon was deeply paranoid. 
And he, he really didn't like the idea that people were saying things about him that he didn't know. And so Nixon uh, orders his new attorney general, uh, Elliot Richardson, to fire the special counsel. The fire of the special counsel. You might remember special counsels from things like you know the Trump stuff that happened lately. Basically, Archibald Cox is the special counsel. Um, the special counsel, Archibald Cox, he wants to um, listen to these tapes. You know, Cox is like, hey, these tapes, they're probably evidence. If there's anything bad that happened, you know, if there's any co co co-alignment between the Nixon White House and the Watergate break-in. It's going to be on these tapes. I need to hear them. Nixon says, no, there's executive privilege. There's executive privilege. And basically, only the attorney general can fire the special counsel. Nixon is really leaning upon his new attorney general to do it. This attorney general says, I can't do it because it's going to make me look very weak. So instead, Nixon fires him. Um, you know, Nixon actually, uh, sorry, Richardson quits. Richardson quits. He quits. Uh, likewise, the next guy in line, who is uh, Richardson's attorney general, sorry, Richardson's deputy, likewise, he too quits. But the third person in line does indeed uh, fire Cox. This is called the Saturday Night Massacre. If you go over one more slide, basically it's where Nixon fires a bunch of people trying to make this go away. This, the outcry because of this, you go over one slide, causes Nixon to have to reveal some tapes. You know, there is so much public outcry. Nixon says, look, I'm not going to release all the tapes. I'm not going to release all the tapes, but I'm going to release some transcripts. And there's no two ways about it. These transcripts look bad. Uh, the transcripts of the tape show Nixon as paranoid, anxious, swearing all the time, just like he's swearing like a sailor, which, uh, okay, Nixon was in the Navy, so for him to swear like a sailor is not too unusual. But it really shows that, you know, Nixon is not this public face. He's a very uh, not nice person saying not nice things about Jews and African-Americans and really not a nice person. He swore a lot. They, they said that redacted was the most common statement. Basically, expletive deleted was the most common thing in the transcript. And also, there was one tape in particular that got a lot of attention. Just recorded a few days before the break-in, there's a mysterious 18-minute pause during a juicy conversation that seems to be headed towards a Watergate break-in. Basically, uh, Nixon and one of his uh, cronies, they're talking about the committee to re-elect the president, and maybe they should do something. All of a sudden, somebody from Creep is about to come in, and then the tape cuts for 18 minutes. Now, Nixon's secretary tries to uh, fall on the sword for this one. She claims that she, quote-unquote, accidentally erased it. But whenever she's asked, okay, how do you erase a tape? Like, how do you do that? She's unable to, like, show the hand signs. Basically, replicate the motions. How would you do it? She couldn't do it. So pretty much, she's pretty much a stoolie. Now, as though this isn't bad enough, in a completely unrelated scandal, Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's vice president, uh, was alleged to have taken bribes while he was a governor of New uh, while he's governor of Maryland. While he's governor of Maryland, um, Agnew was accused of taking bribes from military contractors. And there's even some evidence he might have taken it as vice president. So it's a completely unrelated scandal, but it still does not make the Nixon White House look very good. And so Agnew resigns as vice president. Agnew resigns as vice president and actually pleads no contest to the charges in 1973. So while Nixon is dealing with this scandal, there's another scandal that takes out his vice president. Uh, because the vice president was a, you know, pretty much kicked out of office because of financial irregularities, uh, there's a lot more pressure about Nixon's finances. And once Nixon's finances were put out, they discovered there's some weird stuff going on there, too. Not uh, taking uh, bribes from contractors, but uh, maybe some of this money is going places where it doesn't need to go. Now, this is where Nixon defends himself. He goes on TV and says, you know, the American people want to know that the president isn't a crook. Well, I can assure you, and I'm going to do a bad Nixon impression, I'm not a crook. That did not spark any confidence in anybody. Uh, the fact that there were some irregularities, and Nixon's trying to say, I'm not a crook. Uh, Nixon does need to have a vice president. He appoints Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, who uh, we'll talk about later because he's about to become president, uh, Ford is an interesting choice. Um, he had been involved in the House for quite a while, but still, interesting choice to become vice president. And in the midst of this, the issue of the tapes keeps coming up. Nixon is still holding on to some tapes. 
And in the summer of 1974, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decides, and it's pretty much unanimous, that the water, because Watergate was criminal, executive privilege does not apply. A unanimous decision, even with the people that Nixon appointed to the bench, saying because Watergate is criminal in nature, you can't have executive privilege. Executive privilege only protects the president whenever it's not a criminal matter. Uh, while this is going on, the House of Representatives was drafting up articles of impeachment, mainly over obstruction of justice, uh, mainly over obstruction of justice. Basically, the Nixon is trying to do things to prevent the government from fully investigating a criminal matter. If that wasn't bad enough, uh, the tapes that do get released because of the Supreme Court decision make Nixon look even worse. Uh, probably the most damning thing Nixon does is he orders the CIA to block the FBI's investigation into Watergate. I'll repeat that one. The president is ordering the CIA to stop the investigation of another governmental agency. Um, that is probably the most clear example I can give you of obstruction of justice and abuse of power. Like, if you're telling one governmental agency to stop another governmental agency from doing a criminal investigation, that is obstruction of justice. That is clearly abuse of power. And it becomes obvious to Republicans that Nixon needs to go. Um, you know, even Republicans are, are telling him, like, look, we can't defend you. This is awful. So on August 9th, 1974, Nixon resigns. Nixon resigns. Um, and actually, it's kind of interesting. The Constitution has nothing about this. There is no amendment. There's nothing in the Constitution about what to do when a president resigns. Uh, pretty much Nixon wrote a little letter saying, I hereby resign the presidency as of tomorrow. And uh, yeah, so it's not exactly a constitutional crisis, but it's definitely a sense of, uh, well, now are we supposed to do? So Nixon does indeed resign. He resigns. He's out of office. Uh, he resigns with no real apology. He has no real apology and no real explanation, uh, just that he acted in what he believed to be, quote, the best interest of the country. And he leaves. You can see uh, Nixon finally leaving. He over one slide doing his, uh, his, his trademark pose afterwards. Uh, he is now out of office, pretty much spends the rest of his life kind of in semi-obscurity. Um, doesn't really do too, too much. Never really gets involved in Republican politics, mainly because he's viewed as dead weight, viewed as such a scandal. Uh, he dies in like 96. So he's alive for like 20 some odd years after he's president. Um, when he dies, it, it's not the big, big state funeral. I should also mention a lot of people say that Nixon... Um, is our only impeached president. Uh, he was never impeached. Uh, we've only had four presidents, well, four times the president has been impeached in U.S. history. Andrew Johnson, not removed from office. Uh, Bill Clinton, not removed from office. And Donald Trump twice, neither of which he was removed for office. Nixon never makes it to the impeachment process. Uh, however, he would have been impeached and removed from office. Uh, they did not have the votes in the Senate to uh, keep him in office. And so now we have a new president. Go over one slide. President Gerald Ford. Now, in many ways, Ford is a very unlikely president. In fact, he's the only person to become president to have never been elected president nor vice president. Um, he's a, a longtime congressperson, originally from Michigan. In fact, he was a football star at the University of Michigan back in the 30s. Probably, probably the, uh, the the best quote I can give you about Ford, um, he, he's never a very charismatic person. Uh, he describes himself as, you know, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln, kind of iterating, you know, what kind of politician he is, linking himself to the cars. And in his first address as president, Ford declares that, you know, our long national nightmare is over. And Ford has a very brief uh, honeymoon period with the country who just seems to be, you know, willing to be done with all the Nixon stuff. However, it looks as though Nixon might be getting some criminal charges. You know, now that he's no longer president, uh, executive privilege no longer applies. And so he could be held liable for criminal charges. And although Ford had previously um, shot down talks of a pardon, uh, his tune changes on September 8th, 1974, where he issues uh, Nixon a, quote, full, free, and absolute pardon of anything Nixon might have done wrong while in the White House. Now, this is unusual because generally you give pardons after somebody's done something, uh, only when they've gotten, you know, convicted of a crime. However, you know, no, um, Ford is doing a preemptive thing. 
Ford claims he's going to do so uh, to spare the country from a nasty partisan fight during Nixon's legal proceedings. He's like, look, there's no way if you know Nixon goes to trial, this is going to be a fair trial. There's no way it's not going to be a, uh, maybe not a fair trial, but a, a nonpartisan trial. It'd be just a freaking circus every day. You know, having our former president's name skewed through the mud, even if he did do something wrong, it's bad for the country. You know, Nixon, he's, he's, you know, he, he's gone away. We need to move away from it. Now, a lot of other people don't feel the same way. In fact, a lot of other people don't feel the same way. Um, you know, they, they feel that the only way that Ford becomes president is because Nixon offers him a deal. Uh, remember, Ford was never elected vice president, and Ford honestly does not have the charisma to do it on his own. Uh, never really able to do it on his own. Go over one side, you'll see uh, the, the headline of you know, Ford giving a pardon to Nixon. And, you know, the idea is, you know, this Ford is now president and he's he's parting the crook who gave him his job. Uh, once this comes out, Ford's press secretary actually resigns like that day. He's like, nope, screw this. And Ford's approval numbers go down. They're never to return. Uh, Ford has a very brief honeymoon period uh, when he first comes into office. However, by pardoning Nixon, that about does it for Ford. That about does it for Ford. Now, I should iterate, Ford is not a very charismatic politician. I mean, he, he said it himself, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln. And his tenure in office is never very stable. Um, something that happens under Ford's presidency is not really his fault. It's been pretty much, it was going to happen for a while, but it really comes into play during his presidency. Uh, a bedrock of this class since we began is the fact that the American economy had been pretty strong. The American economy had been pretty strong since World War II. However, by this time, the economies of other countries are starting to come on stronger. Now, part of this is to do with the Cold War and that the U.S. would bolster the manufacturing sectors of various countries uh, in an attempt to keep them from going communist. Uh, most specifically in a place like Germany or Japan. Actually, both these countries, their economies come in very strong um, after the war, thanks to U.S. aid. And now by the time we get to the 70s, about 30 years after the war, it looks like they're about to challenge U.S. economic supremacy. Uh, the dollar was not as strong as it once was. The dollar was not as strong as it once was. And America was not the only country producing stuff anymore. Uh, remember, since the beginning of this class, America has been a very dominant economic power because they're pretty much the only one making stuff. But now, more people are making stuff. Now, this is really felt keenly, if you go over one slide, with the oil industry. Um, OPEC comes into being. The oil producing, it's a cartel. It's our cartel that produces oil. It's an oil producing exporter cartel. And a lot of these are Middle East countries. They're Middle East countries that were undermining American energy independence. Um, prior to this time, Texas oil was seen as something that could weather any storm, uh, you know, Texas had the oil fields in places like West Texas, Odessa, those sort of places. I know we have uh, oil production around here in the Gulf and Louisiana, but Texas oil in particular was seen as like that was the bedrock of American energy. It could weather pretty much anything. However, OPEC starts underpricing Texas. The, the, you know, the, uh, the Middle East countries and Venezuela's in there too, but basically they're flooding the market with a much cheaper product. It's che cheaper than um, Texas oil, and pretty much for a while they had pretty much undermined the market and pretty much count corner the market on oil because they're producing it so cheaply. And then once they drive the Texas oil business pretty much out of business, they start jacking up the prices. In fact, OPEC puts an embargo to, on U.S. shipments. They put an embargo on U.S. shipments, and even though there is still oil in Texas, they're not able to get the production going quite as quick. And this causes the gas price to skyrocket. It goes from 30 cents a gallon to about $1.20. Now, I know that sounds cheap to us. You'd be like, my God, I would love for to have $1.20 gas. Don't think about that. Think about the fact that it just quadrupled in price. If gas were to quadruple in price, you would have some issues. There were long gas lines, fights were happening. Now, this crisis does not last very long. This crisis does not last very long. But American confidence had been shaken. You know, since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. had been economically prosperous. There was a general sense of trust in the federal government. And now it's demonstrated to just be a fantasy. Watergate pretty much killed trust in the federal government. Um, 
the general citizens' trust in the U.S. government, approval numbers of the federal government as a whole, they tank after Watergate and they never come back. Likewise, you know, the country was viewed as continually economic prosperous. But now it showed, oh my gosh, you know, we're having bad inflation. We're not able to get the oil that we used to. This is a major issue. And inflation, indeed, was Ford's biggest problem. Um, Ford was having a really bad problem with inflation for a lot of different reasons. Um, go, go over one slide. Uh, talk about whip inflation now. Uh, basically, double-digit inflation is going on due to, um, despite rising unemployment. Um, inflation generally happens when there's an excessive demand. Uh, right now, as, as I say this, in November of 2021, the U.S. is going through a bit of inflation, but a lot of that is due to the fact that we have a lot of uh, pent-up demand from the coronavirus and also some supply-side issues. Um, unemployment is actually fairly low right now, but in this time period, unemployment was actually going up, and uh, it was kind of weird because nobody seems to figure out what's going on. Particularly because the old answer for inflation, which is to raise interest rates, um, isn't going to help anything. Whenever you raise interest rates with high unemployment, it's going to make the economy worse. Now, Ford tries to do something like uh, whip or whip, you know, win, whip inflation now. He is encouraging Americans to spend less and save more, which is decent advice, might help inflation. But he also says we need to make a $5 billion tax hike. Uh, that goes about as well as you might think. Uh, this makes actually makes unemployment rise. And so Ford immediately tange, changes course of a tax cut. That doesn't help anything. That actually makes the inflation a little bit worse. And it becomes what's known as stagflation. Stagflation, which is basically uh, stagnant wages mixed with inflation. Basically, your money is just worth less. Inflation stays in the double digits, and employment ri unemployment rises to about 9%. It's actually get, about to get a lot higher during um, Carter's term. Now, to make matters worse, uh, Ford looks like a buffoon. Uh, Ford looks like a buffoon. Um, you'll, you'll see right there if you go over one slide. Uh, Gerald Ford slips down a flight of stairs going down Air Force One. It, it, it was rainy. Uh, he falls down the stairs of Air Force One. Uh, makes him seem kind of clumsy. Makes him seem kind of clumsy. This gets mercilessly, mercilessly mocked, if you go over one slide, uh, on SNL. Saturday Night Live is a, is a new show in this time period that mocks Ford relentlessly. In fact, uh, one of the videos I'll have you watch is a clip from SNL during the early days making fun of Gerald Ford. In fact, Chevy Chase, who's the first real breakout star of SNL, uh, is really known for his Gerald Ford impression. And in general, the country is feeling very disillusioned. It's very disillusioned. Uh, the 70s are known as kind of a, a time of silliness, of, of fakeness, fake emotions. It's very clear it's not the 60s. People are earnest in the 60s. There are civil rights crusaders going on in the 60s. And there's a lot of idealism. Now, to be fair, uh, civil rights movement does not go away in the 1970s by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of movements are really hitting their stride. But uh, there really doesn't seem to be a real sense of urgency. It's the idea that, you know, America isn't the strong country it once was. Uh, we've weakened as a country. You know, this kind of post-war liberalism ideal of, you know, we can outspend America, American exceptionalism, is really challenged, really strongly challenged. So by the time we get to 1976, which is the bicentennial, it's also an election year, Ford is facing a very strong challenger within the Republican Party, uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, who, if you don't know, is about to become president in four more years, um, he calls Ford to centrist. Reagan is a hardcore conservative. Uh, Ford does indeed get the nomination mainly by being the incumbent, but still, it's not a very uh, strong choice. Uh, there's not a lot of faith in Gerald Ford, and it's making it look that perhaps the Republican Party is very dead. So if you go over one slide, now we get to President Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter, he runs uh, as a very, very much a Washington outsider. Um, he begins his run for presidency in 1974 for the 76 election. Um, he's very much an outsider, which is really to his benefit, because he's not involved with Watergate or Vietnam or any of the other massive blunders. If you go over one slide, you'll see him as, as governor of Georgia, very much as a uh, all shucks personality, he's actually still alive. He's actually still alive. He's our oldest former president. I want to say he's like ninety eight years old now. Um, he was governor of of, of of Georgia. He'd been involved in the Navy during World War II. 
Um, he's a pro-civil rights Democrat, which is interesting in this time period. He's a pro-civil rights Democrat. Um, he claims that Georgia was, quote, too busy to hate. This idea that, you know, we're too busy making money. Uh, we're too busy just, you know, making cash that we don't have time to hate people. We don't have time to really get involved in, like, you know, discriminating against African Americans. He's really trumpeting this kind of New South idea, the Sun Belt, which I'll admit is something that uh, Reagan really, really doubles down on. I'm going to talk about that more when we get to Reagan. He's also the first quote-unquote born-again Christian presidential candidate. We've only had two presidents who've claimed to be quote-unquote born-again Christians, really showing a sea change in American Christianity, uh, particularly in terms of evangelism. Um, he's, turned, he's seen as very pious, possibly even overly pious, but it really seems a good anecdote for all the crazy, all the greed, everything that's just going on in the United States government. He seems like maybe he could bring some morality back to it. Uh, probably the most, the best example of this is his "Lusted in My Heart" interview. As he's running for president, uh, he gives an interview with Playboy magazine. He gives an interview with Playboy magazine, which is known for having pictures of naked people. And uh, during this interview, they ask him, "Have you ever cheated on your wife?" Now. He's never cheated on his wife, Rosalind Carter. Um, he's seen as a you know, fuddy-duddy religious fundamentalist. However, when pressed, he admits, you know, I've never cheated on my wife, but I have seen some beautiful women, and I have, quote, lusted in my heart. Which just means he's looked at other women and, and thought they were pretty. Um, this could have been something that, like, kind of backfired against him, but actually it seemed kind of endearing. It seemed kind of endearing, like, oh, you know, he, he's such a fuddy-duddy. You know, this might be what Washington needs. Now, Carter is really gambling that although the South is leaning heavily Republican, and they had went Republican under Nixon, he thought there might be enough loyalty to the Democratic Party to win over the states in the South. And it's a very efficient campaign. It's a very efficient campaign. He gets the delegates uh, way before he becomes national uh, attention. Um, the Republican Party is not looking very alive in this time period, and Carter's looking like the antidote for everything bad. Uh, the election starts out, out heavily in Carter's favor. Ford, Ford does narrow it quite a bit, not a, not quite a bit, but some. But still, Carter wins primarily by carrying the South. He gets 297 electoral college votes to Ford's 240. And so now that Carter's in office, you can go over one slide, uh, he really tries to distance himself from containment. You know, that's his foreign policy is he's trying to get away from containment. But he says that we need to support human rights, depending on whether or not they're, you know, communist or, or capitalist. We need to have really be fighting for the civil rights of people across the world, not just for U.S. citizens. So to do so, he would cut aid to a lot of different people. He cuts aids to very repressive regimes in Latin America, also as well as uh, white supremacist governments like in Rhodesia, which is uh, modern day Zimbabwe. Uh, the government of Rhodesia was uh, very much a white supremacist government. Likewise, uh, brutal dictatorships such as Idi Amin, who was in Uganda. Idi Amin was uh, um, not white, but he was brutal. And, and likewise, apartheid, uh, apartheid, which was in South Africa. He also stops the sale of weapons and police equipment to them. It's, uh, it's probably the closest version of moral diplomacy which had been used by Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson tried to do the same thing, basically saying, I'm really arguing for the morality of people. If you go over one slide, you will see Jimmy Carter's greatest foreign policy, a triumph, which was the Egypt and Israel uh, peace deal, the Camp David Accords, uh, in which Carter really leverages Christianity with Judaism and Islam. You know, really be like, hey, everybody respects Jerusalem. We should have some sort of deal here. Basically, Israel should get a right to exist. Uh, pretty much uh, what Carter's able to do is to get the president of Egypt, uh, President Sadat, to say, hey, Israel has a legitimate claim to the territory. In exchange of that, they give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt. Uh, something that Israel had taken over during one of Israel's war with Egypt. Israel had a very strong um, air force, pretty much taking out the entire Egyptian air force. Carter also sweetens the pot by promising a ton of aid for both countries. So he kind of bribes them, leverages Christianity, but he gets, for the first time, an Arab country admitting, or not admitting, but recognizing, hey, Israel has a right to exist. The problem is, is that domestically, things are getting worse. Unemployment does get better, 
but inflation is staying high and also interest rates. It gets to the point where they have to increase interest rates. Now, Carter does try to uh, you know, reduce the money supply to help take care of inflation uh, with interest rates and other things like that, which would work, but it would actually take time. Uh, further complicating thing was the price of energy was skyrocketing uh, because of things like OPEC, but other energy prices were just going up. To help out with things, uh, Carter creates a new uh, cabinet position, the Department of Energy, but it seems too folksy. Carter does things like uh, puts solar panels on the White House, um, saying that Americans should raise their thermostats in the summer and you know put on more sweaters in the winter, which is decent advice, but also when you're the President of the United States, your word has a bit more weight and he comes off looking very preachy. Uh, same thing whenever he talks about the sins and ills of commercialism. He says Americans need to be happier with what they have and not be buying as much. That will help you know, spread resources around for everybody. Is it good advice? Sure. But he comes off sounding more like a preacher than a president. And Carter, he gives a speech uh, that you're going to listen to, it, the, the, the malaise speech, the, the crisis of confidence speech, where basically Carter is really talking about this overall feeling of the United States in 1979, saying that, you know, America's really lost its footing. We just had this real malaise covering us. Now, ironically, in the speech, he never says the word malaise, but it becomes known as the malaise speech. Like, Carter does admit, like, hey, you know, I'm recognizing there's bad things going on in the country, but we're going to help it out by doing something different. People don't remember that second part where he says, here's how we're going to change it. They just remember he's kind of labeling the issue that had been plaguing America for a while. I mean, honestly, since uh, Watergate, but possibly earlier in the 1960s, this feeling that America, it was just not the way it used to be. It was just kind of failing. And Carter says this is a spiritual and moral issue for the country. Now, as bad as it is, it's about to get a lot worse for Carter with what happens in Iran. Now, Iran is part of the Middle East. It's got a very long history that I can't get into right now, but uh, maybe some other time I'll do a podcast about it, and it's actually pretty interesting. But what you need to know is that for a long time, since 1953, the United States had supported, if you go over one slide, the Shah. The Shah of Iran. He was the leader of Iran. Uh, he was kind of a um, hereditary you know, ruler, basically, uh, He's put in by the CIA and under other individuals in 1953 to prevent Iran from becoming too radical and too communist. Now, the Shah had done a pretty good job of modernizing the country. The Shah had revamped education. He brought in uh, more equal rights for women, for stuff like that. But he also was very, very brutal. He was very brutal, uh, used secret police. It was very harsh against his enemies. Very harsh against his enemies. One particular enemy, if you go over one more slide, is the Ayatollah Khomeini. The Ayatollah Khomeini is a religious leader. He has a more fundamentalist version of Islam, a much more fundamentalist version of Islam. He says that the Shah has become too Western. He says the Shah is you know, a bad Muslim. He's being an um, you know, apostate as a Muslim. And basically, Khomeini has to flee the country because of the Shah. Uh, the Shah does not kill Khomeini, but the Shah is not opposed to killing Khomeini. Um, the Ayatollah, though, Khomeini basically flees Iran. Now, it's kind of interesting. As though Carter was cutting money left or right for uh, leaders that he claims were not moral or leaders that were not good on human rights, he is keeping up a ton of money for the Shah. Uh, the Shah is getting tons of money, tons of money. And it's this idea that maybe there's some hypocrisy for the U.S., this idea that we're going to cut money to some countries, but we want it for other countries, even though the Shah is doing much, much worse. Now, though the Shah is a strong man, uh, there's one thing he can't outmuscle, which is cancer. And then December of 1978, he asked Carter basically to allow him to come to the Mayo Clinic, um, one of the best you know, cancer centers in America, one of the best hospitals in America, to get cancer treatment, uh, to get cancer treatment. Uh, Carter at first is kind of uh, iffy about it. He doesn't know how it's going to look. He doesn't know if we should like directly let the Ayatollah into the country. That being said, though, Carter eventually relents and says, okay, you can come to America to get um, cancer treatment at the Mayo Clinic. Um, in time, though, the, the Shah is not going to make it. The Shah is going to die, which, well, it's going to play into what happens next. Now, by going to the Mayo Clinic, the Shah relinquishes power. 
And when he relinquishes power, there's a power vacuum, which is filled by returning uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. And once Khomeini comes back into Iran, he really dials up the rhetoric. Uh, now that the Shah's out, he really starts talking bad about the United States. Uh, he says that the United States is uh, anti-religion. He calls the United States the Great Satan. That's, that's a term that never really seems to go away. This idea that the United States is the Great Satan. We're the great evil in the world. We're the cause of all sorts of um, a-religious, amoral, secular problem. And then while he's doing this, it's not known to the general public in Iran, but it comes out the Shah has left. Comes out the Shah's left, and at first Khomeini's followers are kind of uh, hesitant. They think maybe this is a trick. Maybe this is going to have the Shah come back with the CIA power. You know, the CIA is how he got into power in the first place. The Ayatollah's people are kind of um, afraid to really act at first because they're afraid, is this a trap? Is the CIA going to get this? Still, though, in November of 1979, you go over one slide, the Iranian revolutionaries, they rush to the U.S. Embassy and they take 70 hostages. Um, if you ever seen the movie Argo, this is kind of what it's about. Uh, now, initially, they do release uh, the women hostages and also African-American hostages, bringing the number down to 52. But still, you have 52 white male hostages. And this blindsides Carter and makes him look very weak. Because while the same time this is happening, right around this time, the Russians launch an invasion of Afghanistan. The Russians lost an invasion of Afghanistan, which Carter finds to be too aggressive, and it's kind of the end of detente. Pretty much the end of detente, this kind of you know easing of tensions, ratchets back up. Now, Carter warns the Kremlin, like, hey, if you're in Afghanistan, which, by the way, borders up against Iran... Um, if you if you do this, uh, if you go against Iran, if you try to help Iran, we're going to attack you with everything. Uh, does seem kind of like an empty threat. There's a general sense that Carter is not going to send the military, the sense that he's probably too soft to do it. Uh, basically, what Carter does instead, he cuts Russian aid. Uh, he cuts the Russians getting grain, for instance, which is something they were promised under salt, and also boycotts the Olympics. But it also really stinks for Carter because it's an election year. It's 1980. And if you go and if you look at that picture, pretty much every day the Iranians are coming out, touting the hostages and recording videos saying how the United States is bad and evil and very weak. Carter seems to be unable to do anything. He tries economic sanctions, it doesn't work. If you go over one slide, he tries to do a spec ox operation. Basically send in special forces and Operation Eagle Claw, uh, basically secretly send in some troops to liberate the uh, the hostages. It doesn't work. The plane crashes. Several die. And Carter's looking toward the election with things very grim. Uh, it's kind of the low point of basically uh, American viewpoint of themselves. You know, America comes into Carter, you know, feeling kind of disillusioned because of Watergate. And he actually makes things more disillusioned. And it's kind of interesting because because of this malaise, and honestly, the Republican Party, which seemed very dead, Actually, has a bit of energy coming to it, and America seems very willing to have a new illusion. But we're going to talk about that more next time. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History Three Twenty Seven, talking about Watergate and what comes after. <laughs>